Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. In recent years, the Australian government has turned its security and intelligence efforts towards the growing threat of homemade terrorism. The increasing radicalisation of Australia's criminal networks and disaffected youth giving rise to a new generation of potential suburban-based jihadists. It's a genuine threat, and therefore all the more compelling and perhaps unnerving to be featured as the central plot of author Michael Brissenden's first work of fiction, The List. Michael has been a political and defence correspondent for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation for more than 30 years, during which he has witnessed governments fall, regimes rise, wars begin without end, and has held our own politicians accountable for their spying on foreign governments. This experience has, of course, richly informed the action and intrigue of his new thriller, and it's a genuine pleasure to have him here today answering questions instead of asking them. Hello, Michael. Thank Hi, you for James. joining me. Thanks very much for having me. Now, Michael, I'm, I know people who genuinely quake in their boots <laughs> when they hear that Michael Brissenden is calling to ask for some answers. So has it been a unique experience for you to perhaps be on the other side of the microphone, having to give answers instead of asking questions? I must admit it has been pretty interesting, yeah. It's... Um it is a very different thing having to answer questions than having to ask them. <laughs> both have their, uh, I mean, I think you need, uh, bo both both need skill of one sort or another, um, but uh, certainly answering questions is a bit difficult, yeah. Your first posting, or before we actually get to your mm. first posting then, do you remember what may have been one of the first political stories you had to cover for the ABC? Wow, that's a hard question. Yeah, looking um, back on 30 years yeah. of um, investigative journalism. Uh, look, I think the first thing I did was um, I was working for a radio program uh, background briefing um so that would be the first really political story i did which was about was actually about the debate over um classification for pornography oh uh, really so, is it, this uh, is what early this would have been 1989 1980 maybe maybe around oh, somewhere in yeah, the, this would have been the reclassification of the the calls to establish what was it nve, NVE the non-violent right. erotica right. exactly of, um, you're very well informed <laughs> Which is rather concerning. <laughs> yeah. It was around, uh, it must have been 88 or something. Yeah. So, you know, I, I went to Canberra and, and spent a lot of time talking to people there for, for that program. And then um, uh, that would have been just before, I don't know, it was, must have been around, uh, it wouldn't have been shortly after that that I, I then joined uh, Radio Current Affairs as a, and I got a, a sort of traineeship with Radio Current Affairs and then from there went to Canberra as a full-time uh, political reporter. What, what did you get from those early days of journalism? When did you just suddenly say, "My heart's singing. This is this is the place for me. This is my home." Oh, look, almost immediately, I knew that was you know that was. Uh, I loved the. Um, I just loved the energy of it, you know, and the thrill of it, and the the way things, particularly um, in politics in those days in Canberra, it was. Uh, you know, it was always, as you know, for a young reporter, it's always incredibly exciting. There's always something going on. There's always uh, things, big things happen, and you're there and you're part of it. And, uh, you know, it's great to be part of that and, and to be witness to, to history in many ways, and even if it's small stuff like the... Uh, the press conference where Paul Keating said this is the recession we had to have. You know, it was one of those moments. You're just sort of sitting there going, wow. And people still talk about that moment. It's a defining know. note, isn't exactly. it? It really is. Yeah. There's lots of stuff like that. So, you know, when 
uh, and, you know, working for Radio Current Affairs, as I did then for the AM, PM and the World Today, you know, often you, you, you were the first to air with everything, you know, because something would happen and you'd just, you'd, you'd get it done and you'd get it out. And in a way that wasn't just straight reporting, it was analysis and it was uh, interviews and, and uh, you know. Well, well, I put it to you that the ABC was really at that time, of course, this is pre-internet, who was really setting the agenda for the rest of the day's news for the, the major sure. networks. Um, it, it really did set the agenda, certainly on the politics level. Certainly did. And, and... You know, and still does remarkably. You know, even after all this time, a program like AM, for instance, uh, you know, still, it's now 50 years old and it's still, despite all of the changes that have happened in the media landscape over the last 10 or 15 years in particular, that program still sets the agenda every day and has the potential to do so anyway. I mean, it's just where it sits in the cycle and how many people listen to it and how important it is as part of our, you know, daily uh, intake of news it's still, you know, right up there as one of the most important programs. But certainly back then, you know, pre-internet, uh, I mean, it was a very different media landscape. You know, there was no 24-hour television news. There was no, uh, there was no internet. I mean, the papers went to bed at sort of 10 o'clock at night and then yeah, nothing. The, the agenda you know? was very much set by the morning broadcast and then the 7 p.m. broadcast. Yeah, and, and then... Everyone was home to watch it as yeah, well. And yeah, and everything pivoted around those... That 7 p.m. at night, or 6 to 7 p.m., the TV news bulletins. And, and yeah, it, um, it was a very different media landscape. Very different. Let's move to your first posting then, which I, I believe was to Moscow, mm-hmm. and which was around 1993, perhaps. Now, this was the, the, the period of Boris Yeltsin, and you, you, um, you must have seen some, some fascinating things during the time of what was meant to be Reformation, but ultimately turned into autocratic rule. It was an amazing experience and an incredible time to be in Moscow as a journalist at that time. Uh, We got there a week after Yeltsin had shelled the White House. Um, And we should just clarify for those who who don't know, this is the Russian White House. This is the Moscow White House, not the White House (laughs) in in Washington. Um, Yes, the true winter White House compared to Trump's winter White House. That's right, that's right. And it was like, you know, uh, it was like stepping off the dark side of the moon yeah. in those days. It really was just a totally different world and a totally different experience. It was anarchic. It was chaotic. It was unpredictable. No one really knew what was going to happen, or where it was going to go. Um, and there were a lot of people like myself and my wife and or my now wife um we were really we were young you know um and there were a lot of people there who were young who were this was their first posting they were really making their their way in in the journalism world because it was that sort of place you know it was like people just ended up there because um it was exciting and it was uh it was it was vibrant it was you know so there's a group of people that we've that we sort of were the correspondents at that time were also very close because you know we're all covering essentially at that time you know most of the time it was the biggest story in the world um well it didn't let up i mean he, he you know about a year after i think it was 1994 the chechnya war yeah. broke out and they they sent a series of troops in there and there was like losses of tens of thousands oh it was extraordinary time so you know you had all the business stuff going on people being murdered all over the place you had the chechen wars you had the unpredictable politics uh, the, the the communists agitating all the time. To, there was a sense that they might 
come back or there'd be a coup or there'd be some sort of, uh, you know, military action or, you know, really no one knew what was going on. So those group of people have stuck with, uh, with us, you know, for a long time. Is it that because that sense of community is built around the nature of, it's almost like a war room environment? Absolutely. That you're yeah. always on call, you're always reporting yeah. news and you only get through it because you're the only ones who can relate to it? I think so, yeah. I think there's certain certain truth in that. I mean, you know, few people really understand uh, the nature of the business and it is a relentless, sort of totally absorbing business, particularly when you're on top of a story like that and you live in a place like Moscow at that time where there really wasn't anything to do. I mean, outside of working and, uh, <clears throat> you know, there were, there were very few restaurants, there were very few bars, there were very few... Um, uh, sources of entertainment. Um, so people made their own entertainment. Uh, people worked really hard, they played hard, and they made their own entertainment. And it was a very close group of... Um, the foreign correspondent corps was, was very close. Um, it was was a fantastic time, actually. It was a really, really great time to be there, and it was really formative. How, how did that influence, perhaps, your understanding of, of politics? Because, I mean, you know, Russia was so different to mm. the Western world and during a period of what was meant to be Reformation. Uh, how did it change your view on, the, on how politics works or at least how people and the media respond to politics? Uh, I think it changed a lot of things, really. It changed my view of... Um, I, um, look, I think coming from Australia where it was the first time I'd really come across the unpredictability of politics. I mean, politics in Australia is unpredictable, but it's not... It's Certainly not, in the last 10 years. Yeah, yeah, but it's not sort of nation-ending unpredictable, you know? It's not... Um, it, it, what's at stake is not um, the future of the nation um, or, you know, the future of... Uh, I mean, in Moscow, what was at stake was... Uh, uh, the future of whatever was the future, you know, like no one really knew uh, who was who who was going to map the future out and how it was going to be mapped out and and whether uh, this idea that you could transition from a uh, from a Soviet um, economy and a Soviet um, politic to something that was going to be uh, I mean hoped the hope was it was going to be a democratic nation that it was actually going to I mean obviously it hasn't really. Uh, resolved itself in that way but so uh, um, things were very unstable and unpredictable and uh, you know when the the 96 election happened um, there, there were rumors going around all of the time um, that that uh, there was a coup underway that uh, uh, the, the, the 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 sort of intelligence forces really were going to take control again um, now it didn't happen, but ultimately it sort of did happen. Really, I mean, if you if you look at Putin, I mean, I think most people would think that that's exactly what did happen over the long the long time long period. Mm. Mm. Yeah, certainly the suggestion with someone like like that with his background of the KGB, etc. Yeah, and the apparatus is still there, and all yeah. of that, you know. So nothing much changed. Mm. Did that make you appreciate the the Western democratic system a little bit more? Well, it certainly it certainly made me. Uh, realise the value of our democratic traditions, certainly. I mean, I knew that anyway, but being somewhere where those traditions don't exist, <laughs> in fact, they're trying to, trying to make some new sort of uh, political tradition, uh, yeah, it's certainly a different, uh, a different way to live. And 
look, Russia also had so many other problems. It wasn't just the politics, it was the, uh, the disruption to ordinary people's lives, the generation of people who, who were lost. You know, you take away someone in their 40s at that time, they're lost. I mean, they were trained under this system that no longer exists. They're too old to adapt to a new system that's coming along. Um, they have no money, they have no property. Uh, there are a lot of people who fell, uh, um, who fell by the wayside and just were sort of forgotten. And then there were a lot of people who, there was a lot of criminal activity, there was a lot of people who made a lot of money just simply because they were in the right place at the right time. They happened to be running some sort of in industry or whatever that was um, privatised overnight for nothing and they ended up inheriting it. So there were a lot of people who... Um, and, and there were a lot of shonky, dodgy businesses going on. Yeah, that was really the rise of the oligarchs in many ways, sure wasn't was, it? Yeah. yeah. At yeah. The, the same time as economic collapse for the yep. for most of the USSR at that yep. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it took a long time for that to resolve itself. And you know, uh, the remarkable thing about Moscow in those days was there were some of the richest people I've ever seen in my life, and alongside the poorest <laughs> you know there was nothing in between and there was you know one or two percent of that population had more money than you could possibly imagine so that ostentatious display of wealth up against the the chaos and the economic crisis and uh, it was um yeah it was a very very interesting time what sort of role of responsibility do you think the media has to play in reporting on that sort of disenfranchisement of the people and the, the loss of a culture, etc.? Especially in a very important state, role. state like that. I think it's a very important role. I think that is what we should be doing. I mean, uh, that's why we invest in, uh, in correspondence to do that. Uh, unfortunately, we don't invest as much as we used to in, in that, and that's a sort of broader discussion about the state of the media generally. But, uh, you know, yes, yeah, some of the most fascinating uh, and important stories that came out of uh, the transition from the Soviet Union were those personal stories, you know, and, the, and yeah, the, the, um, the challenges to, uh, to culture and, uh, yeah. There's often, uh, for a good reason, the argument that a free press is an indicator of a free country. Mm. And I think we're seeing a lot of that debate with what's happening under the Trump presidential mm. rule, shall we say, for lack of a better term. Um, and you sort of address some of this in your book, and we will get into the nature mm. of the list itself. And it, 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 at the moment, just while we're on this topic, it raises the question of what role should government play in managing their message when it comes to matters of great threat or civil threat? Mm. Um, and so acts of terrorism, etc. Did you see any level of particular control, whether it be during your time in Moscow or even in Brussels, relating to how governments try and control bad news? And oh, look, governments always try and control the message. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, the interesting thing about um, the, the, the technological change that we've, uh, we've had over the last... 20 years or so, is that that message has become much harder to control. Um, is this because of citizen journalism? Absolutely, just because there's so much uh, that can be done online, there's so much that is done uh, in on social media, and, you know, often it's, uh, you know, it, uh, it's not as uh, considered as, um, you know, a, a full-on reportage of something, but in terms of controlling the message... It's very, very difficult for governments now to control the message. That's, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why 
there is so much sort of un political uncertainty around the place and why uh, these sort of social um, movements have so much impact. You know, like if you look at the United States, for instance, and the, you know, the Trump voters, the take America back, make America great again sentiment was around, has been around for some time through the Tea Party, through, uh, you know, through all of that. But all of that has been energised and, um, and invigorated by social media. You know, that's how that communication is working. That's how there's a consensus around, a cert around certain ideas that actually have some momentum. Um, and that makes it very difficult for, you know, traditionally, uh, certainly here in Australia, which we have a, you know, we have a robust media culture here. We have a, uh, and we, we had a very uh, rigid, uh, uh, certainly for politicians, there was a very, there was a path to follow in getting the message out and controlling the message, and it was predictable. And you know, you could place a story in the newspapers. You knew it was going to get run, picked up by the radios in the morning, and pushed through the day and end up on uh, TV at night. And there was a there was a way to actually uh, push a message and control a message. I mean, you could never obviously control what people wrote or said, but in some ways you could you could actually work within that. I think the difficulty politicians have now is that they can't really find a way to do that anymore because it's just, it's just all over the place. Well, there's a, there's a lovely line in your book which is one of the characters says, the papers are dying. Soon all we'll, we will be left with are the tweeters and the blowhards. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and it seems to be a very common thought amongst our politicians, let alone our business leaders at the moment. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, we, we are in a crisis of journalism and uh, that's why the ABC is so important now, more important than ever, I would argue, um, because the model's broken. You know, all those old model, the model that we had where the advertising funded the journalism uh, and the newspapers and television uh, radio, all of that's gone. You know, there's no money in it anymore, and no one, no one's going to put correspondence out there if they don't have the money to do it. And that's what we've seen. So I, I do think we're in a really difficult time. And until someone can actually find a way of, I mean, you know, it's happening in funny sorts of ways. Like there's um, uh, philanthropic journalism going on. There's you know all sorts of stuff. But actually, the really big, important. Um, uh, mastheads are dying, you know. Some of them will survive. The big ones like the New York Times, they seem to have found a way to do it simply because of the scale they've got, you know. And, and also the content now related to their, basically their war on, on Donald Trump. And we shouldn't say war sure, on Donald, Donald Trump. Trump probably saved reporting. the New York Times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, Fairfax is finished um, pretty much. Uh, it's hard to know where News Corp is going to go with its newspapers at least. Um, but certainly the, the, the money's not there in the way it used to be. Looking back at your period as a correspondent then, I think it was around the time that you were in Brussels a few years later and you started to cover the Yugoslav Wars. Mm. And that seemed to be the moment which um, seeded the idea for this book. Um, and we should just say the actual plot is that there's um, an Islamic fundamentalist terror suspects on a security watch list who are being executed throughout Sydney. And there's at the same time, there's a team of counterintelligence operators trying to stop a major terror attack. And obviously the two stories combine into what is a very rich and, and dark and as I said at the beginning, quite an unnerving thriller because of the fact that it certainly could occur. So where did this seed come from, this idea? Well, you know, uh, travelling through the uh, the Yugoslav Wars, which I did, I covered pretty much every one of them, 
in one way or another, but often you would come up to a checkpoint and you'd find, uh, you'd hand over your Australian passport and some 20-year-old would come out of the hut and say, g'day, I'm Dragan from Brisbane, or, you know, you must know my uncle, you know, he lives in Melbourne. There are so many Australians, young Australians, who were uh, fighting in those wars. Many of them, I think, I don't know for sure, but I'm sure the majority of them I'm pretty sure the majority of them would have been born in Australia and sent there uh, by their parents. If not, they would have come to Australia very young. So their connection with their, uh, you know, with the, their homeland, I suppose, wasn't, you know, wasn't, I guess, wasn't so strong. But it, they, they were sent back. They went back. They willingly went back, and they were on all sides in those conflicts. Uh, when I came back and uh, came back to Australia after Washington, and I uh, took the job as the Defence and National Security Correspondent, the discussion at that time was very much about what do we do about all these Australians who are going to fight uh, for the terrorists, who are going to the Middle East and end up with, in ISIS or, or, or whatever other terrorist group uh, at the time, and uh, and what happens if they come back to Australia? Well. I thought, well, you know, that's interesting, but the difference in this one is that actually we're in, we're actually engaged in this as soldiers as well. Unlike those other wars, uh, there is a potential in the Middle East for those Australians to be targeting Australian soldiers for the the two sides to meet in conflict. Yeah, it's a true case of neighbour fighting neighbour. That's right. Yeah. What happens if they meet? What happens if they? Um, uh, what are the consequences of that? And both of them come home, right? What what then happens? And you know, at the time that there was a uh, there was a lot of uh, there was a story around about special forces um, trying to uh, being targeted by uh, someone who was um, uh, a, a, a makeshift bombs making makeshift bombs, um, and they were trying to find this person. And the suggestion was. That this person was an Australian, right? Right. None of it was ever really written. None of it was ever. Uh, but you know, there was there was because there's enough indication because the person seemed be. to know what you know how the Australians worked right. and how that you know so. Uh, so that's how the book opens. Really, is um, uh, this an ambush where one person is left alive? Um, an ambush for patrol that had been trying to track this person down. Uh, one Australian is left alive and uh, the leader of the ambush of the, uh, the Taliban or the jihadi ambushes says this is for all the boys in Lakemba and I just thought th- that's something that if it did happen the impact of that would be quite um, confronting and potentially um, it could change everything and and it, and it does. It's, mm. The book itself questions that nature of not only of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, but if you're carrying with you, not that there's enemies abroad, but they may be here right now mm. and building in force. So, mm. so how do you cope and how do you bring the war back home and continue that war back home mm. as well? And then also the, the decisions that a government must make if someone's going to take care of that. That's right. Whether offic- official or not. 
That's right. Such. It opens up all sorts of challenges for everybody. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm quite intrigued by the fact that the, the book itself actually draws um, a, a lot of its uh, basis of stories and certainly the concerns relating to the racial divide or the increasing racial divide within New South Wales and certainly Sydney back to the 2005 Cronulla riots. Mm. Why did you pick that particular... Was that a particular flashpoint for you? I think that was a really important moment in Australia. I think it was a... Um, uh, it, it, it really was one of those... Uh, seminal sort of formative cultural experiences in Australia and it was that you know um, the the idea that there would be these two tribes and that that would be it would be such um, such a violent standoff and such a um, uh, hated hateful emotive um, period that was also inflamed in many ways by the media coverage around it um, and it exposed uh, a nasty, uh, racist undercurrent uh, in Australia. Um, that perhaps hadn't had a voice. I don't think it. I mean, or... I think it hadn't. It hadn't expressed itself in that form. You know. I mean, I obviously we've got and we have had. Um, uh, you know. Uh, you know, race is always a, a difficult question, and it, I think in Australia we haven't escaped that. But I don't think it had ever exploded into such open and violent aggression that engaged the media in so many ways as well, that engaged the politicians, that... Um, and, and I, you know, I think that was uh, quite a significant... Given what came afterwards as well and everything that happened um, after that, the sensitivities that we have with, um, you know, in the post-9-11 world with, uh, um, you know, with our own Muslim immigration... Um, I just found that one of those moments that was a sort of cultural touchstone for us. And yeah. I really wanted to use it. It seemed to give birth to a lot more of that ongoing dialogue in yeah. regards to Islamic fundamentalism, the relabeling of Muslims, you know, our, our foreign, uh, foreign deployments, but also including, it's, it's obviously carried on to even what's going on at the moment in regards to um, the refugee situation. Yeah, look, it, it was just one of those, yeah, like I say, it was a, it was a cultural touchstone. But it, it's interesting that it's not, I think it's shocked everyone. You know, it, it was quite uh, like people were genuinely just wow. How did you know? How did it get to this without anybody realising? And how did it sort of blow up like this? And um, it was amazing. You made a point of in the book the, that um, your two lead characters, um, who are AFP Australian Federal Police officers, and one of them is Lebanese, mm. and that she has moved to Cronulla, the the heart of the riots, specifically because of that impact and what it what it said. Was that important to you to sort of have someone almost like facing up to it throughout yes, the book? Yes, it was. I really wanted her to be the um, I, I, this character Haifa. I wanted her to be this sort of to the personification of the 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 difficulties that the debate places on um, the Muslim community in Australia, uh, the conflicted way many many of them have to you know deal with it, um, and the challenges that that poses. But I also I, I wanted her to be in Cronulla because it was her. She's a strong character, and this was her up yours moment. You know, you don't know who I am, but I know who you are, and 
this is my act of defiance. Yeah, as you say in the book, the Cronulla area is still very, very white, mm. you know, very Anglo-Saxon. And then the story, it juxtaposes it with the more multiracial areas of Punchbowl and Greenacre mm. and Bankstown, that southwest heartland, which has also been covered because of that, that has been the heartland of Middle Eastern organised crime. Mm. And that that seems to be now, unfortunately, a bit of a birthing place for this fundamentalism. Of course. Yeah, what, yeah. Sort, what sort of work did you do to investigate a bit further that, what's been going on out there? Oh, quite, quite a lot, actually. Um, and I have to say Cronulla is sort of white during the week, but on the weekend it's not. It's a really, Cronulla's a really interesting place. Like, it's still the place, and it has been for many, many years, the place where Western Sydney goes to the beach. And I think because you can get the train there. Uh, so on the weekend it is an incredibly multicultural place. But during the week, it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, uh, Australian country towns in the 1950s. Perhaps not that bad. Um, but uh, so uh, I wanted to explore um, the areas that have been the traditional areas of settlement for um, the Muslim population, the Muslim immigrants that came to Australia right from the, the end of the 70s all the way through and still and still is. And that's that sort of southwest Sydney area. Um, very good friend of mine who I've worked with a lot, who's a Turkish-Australian cameraman for the ABC. Um, I mean, I've spent a lot of time on... We've had lots of uh, deployments ourselves overseas, and we've worked together, uh, you know, many, many times. And uh, he grew up in Auburn, and I said, you know, take me back to Auburn and show me the underbelly of the, the southwest, and he did, and it was quite an eye-opening experience. So we spent quite a long time doing that. Um, I think uh, I wanted to, and somebody else picked up on this the other day, um, it, it, they just came to me and said, look, it's really nice to read a book about Sydney that doesn't mention Bondi once. And, uh, you know, it's sort of true. Like, you read uh, books about sort of genre fiction about Sydney, and it's often about the places that are the sort of tourist spots. It's you very landmark-driven, yeah. Absolutely. And I wanted to take it away, really take it away from that and get to the... Um, I guess the the side of Sydney that people don't actually often see, and you know, it, many people who live in Sydney never go there. They just don't. You know, you have your little circle of your little particular area. You live on the North Shore or the Eastern Suburbs or whatever. You, you just don't go to those places. The one thing that becomes very apparent in the book, though, is how the the network of all the various highways shows how quickly our city could be cut off mm. as well. Mm. Mm. that we are actually all very much connected. Very much so. And, you know, that's one of the great challenges for uh, 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 for any intelligence community, I think, is, you know, how do you, you know, we're, we're a society built on freedom of movement and um, that's inherently vulnerable. What responsibility do you did you feel or did you when writing this book? Because the nature of fiction is, of course, to think of the worst-case scenario and then try and build a solution to it, especially when writing a thriller. But there must also be a risk that what you're actually writing, it could be a play, play-by-play play book. Well, it could be, but, I mean, I don't think I'm telling anybody. You know, I'm not coming. You know, if I can come up with it, then, you know, I'm sure the terrorists could come up with something a lot worse than that. I mean, it's not, you know, look, uh, I mean, a few people have said that to me before, and and I just think, well, uh, you don't say that about um, about somebody who's written a book about um, uh, I don't know a serial killer or uh, uh, a pedophile, or you know, I mean, you don't 
you don't say those sorts of things about people who write about other sorts of crime. This is not something that is far-fetched. This is something that is quite plausible. And I think a book has to be plausible. Like a genre fiction book like this has to be believable, you know. Um, but, you know, as I was writing it, things did happen. You know, things did unfold. Uh, certainly overseas, we saw stuff unfold in Paris and, um, you know, plenty of places where um, the vulnerability of our openness and our open society and our, uh, you know, our, our trusting sort of institutions make us vulnerable that's that they just do um and that's a challenge that we're going to have to face we have faced in the past we'll continue to face it and it's just one of the it's it's just a fact of life what role do you think the media plays in um, working with government on matters of addressing terrorism ah yeah that's a you know that's a big question i uh i think the media has to be careful not to uh, inflame the situation. I think we have a we certainly have a responsibility to, re- to report accurately, to not shy away from uh, uh, from telling it like it is. Um, there will be moments of uh, there will be delicate moments, I'm sure, and moments of national interest that perhaps um, need some broader judgment, um, but. You know, I think ultimately we have to treat it like everything else that we do. Because um, you do have a moment where a journalist is pulled into mm. a room in Parliament House and basically given his marching orders about if you write this story now, you're going to get in the way of an investigation. Mm. So there has mm. to be a level of almost a quid pro quo, but an understanding of the responsibility of both government and There the does, and there has to be an understanding both ways. I mean, I think more often than not, the... Uh, the pressure is put on the media from uh, the authorities without a true understanding of uh, how what the media's responsibility is as well. So it has to be... Uh, it's, a, it's a sort of two-sided thing, and that's really what I was trying to explore there because, uh, you know, there will be times where uh, the media will want to reveal something that the authorities find uncomfortable or will compromise an operation. and But there are times where that information should be revealed because it's in the public interest. But if it... I, th- I mean, you know, we all have our own... Uh, we all have our own lines when with this. But, I, I th- you know, I think if it endangers individuals in the field, obviously, then that's, then, then that's, uh, that's a point where, you know, you really do have to think about what you're doing. Um, well, but, also, I mean, but there's a lot of stuff that's in the public interest as well that needs to be that really should be told. And to, the, to that point, then, you know, one of your Walkley Awards that you have won and shared was because of your investigation into the Australian government's um, essentially wiretapping mm. and spying on the Indonesian government back mm. in 2009. So is that one of those instances where you and a team just decided this this is in the yes, interests of absolutely? The and there was a lot of pressure not to. Mm-hmm. Not to publish that. What was that experience like for you then? Well, um, it was tense. <laughs> um, I, I think you're underselling that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, uh, there was a lot of... I, I think in the end, uh, we took on board their concerns and rejected them. You know, there was concerns about... Uh, I don't really want to talk about the, the details of sure. it too much, but um, uh, there was a dialogue, put it that way. 
a very um, uh, considered dialogue with the intelligence agencies about what information we had and what we would release. Um, and in the end, we uh, we took on board some of their concerns, but not all of them. So, uh, you know, we made we made the judgment about what we what we. I mean, obviously, they would have liked us not to publish it at all. Uh, but you know, there's all sorts of stuff that governments don't want published that is in the is in the public interest to do so. What's that moment like when a story comes together and you see it and you think this is this is the one? This it's is it. pretty. That's <laughs> pretty full on. I have to say, it's um, you know, you don't get very many moments in your career like that, but they are big. You know, when you know when that happens, I mean, you know, it's just going to go it's going to blow the place off and and it's a very very uh it's a very exciting moment but it's also you know it's you never you don't really know where it's you know where it's going to go so were you based in canberra at the time that you're working on that so how do you then walk the hollowed corridors of parliament house having just blown the roof off the place What's oh, that like for look, you? I, I don't Is there know. an expectation that that's just your job? Yeah, I think playing so. Their part? I think so. I don't think that's you know. There's been plenty of big stories come out of there. You know, it's um, uh, yeah. Look, it's it's that it's a pretty volatile sort of place. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it certainly seems to be the place of big personalities. Yes, and you, you yes. need a, a strong spine to survive. So, what's next for you, Michael? You know, this this finishes with a with the sense that it could go further? Uh, well, there is going to be another book. I just haven't um, started writing it yet, but I have negotiated to take some time off towards the end of next year to do it. I've told the publishers I'll deliver it to be published in 2019. Uh, and it will be a continuation, sort of, a um, couple of the same characters, and, um, yeah, so there will be another one. And I imagine you enjoyed the freedom of fiction as opposed to non-fiction. I should oh, just say at this really point, you, you, you wrote a non-fiction book based around the, the first uh, Obama term in 2012. Um, but what freedom did this give you? Why did you enjoy it so much? Look, I just loved the idea that you could uh, you could take a story wherever you wanted it, wanted to take it. Um, you weren't really constrained by facts. You were, you were inventing characters that uh, you could invest all sorts of things in um uh, it was a very liberating experience i really really found it um, an incredibly enjoyable thing to do and um it uses another sort of writing muscle that you don't use when you're doing journalism you know i mean it's um and it's unpredictable too you know you're writing away and then suddenly the story takes a turn somewhere and you just have to follow it. Uh, and uh, I just really enjoyed that process. I thought it was fabulous. So are you, uh, um, in, to use the terms of, are you a pantser, as in you're writing by the seat, seat of your pants, or are you a plotter? No, I do both, really. I try and... Uh, I like to know sort of where I'm going, but I don't like to be too prescriptive about it. So I generally like to know what's coming in a couple of chapters' time, and then I have a couple... With this one, I certainly... I didn't know how it was going to end, but I knew there were a couple of points along the way that I had to hit. Yeah, so a bit of both. I, I, I don't want to take the spontaneity out of it for myself, so I don't want to actually... But I, but I do... You do sort of need a bit of a... I, I need a bit of a plot, uh, plot guide, but I need to be flexible enough to allow it to go wherever it wants to go. 
Well, Michael, your your book is certainly a new voice in the in the world of action thrillers uh, within Australia. And um, to finish on one last point, you've said that Australian authors should be writing Australian-based stories. Why is that important to you? Well, just like uh, just like the whole argument about Australian voices in the media, I think it's really really important that you know we we are Australian. We live here. We are we are culturally um, connected and. Australian stories are incredibly important. Otherwise, we get totally overrun with uh, uh, with stories from elsewhere. Uh, this has always been a problem, for, a challenge for Australia. It's always been a challenge to try and um, protect and promote Australian stories in an environment where it's so easy uh, to take our stories from other bigger um more culturally aggressive sources and yeah I, I just think there really needs to be a place it needs to be protected you know we've spent a long time doing that too you know we've had uh, we have had um, funding for Australian literature we have we do have content rules about what how much Australian drama should be uh, done on television all of that has now become very difficult to uh, police and, and and guarantee because we don't have that with um, Netflix, say, or uh, and I think there's an argument that we should. Um, uh, if we, if we, you know, there's the, all the discussion about opening, uh, 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 about taking the protections away from Australian publishing that we we have, uh, and I think that would be a very bad move because I think we would get swamped. Um, you know, we're still a relatively small market and we need to protect that market and we need to promote our own voices in that market yeah we have a voice and it's it's important we use it yeah at the very base level michael it's been an absolute pleasure to have you come in and answer my questions and um and to talk about your book which is a fantastic read it's a, it's a genuine thriller and i, I really do look forward to the for whatever comes next great and, and thanks i really appreciate it so thank you michael thanks for coming in and Michael's book, The List, is available in stores and online. You can find him on ABC's Four Corners and on Twitter. You can also follow us at ConversationsWW and like us on Facebook. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you very much for listening.